Thank you, gentlemen. <clears throat> Good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Trust you're having a, a good week, and praise the Lord for a warm place to meet, huh? Amen. Yeah, it's for sure. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Second uh, Thessalonians tonight. We want to get started into this little, well, letter, book, <laughs> uh, three chapters here, and Second uh, Thessalonians. So let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into our study here. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege uh, to assemble. Thank you for this uh, wonderful facility you've blessed us with. We are blessed. We thank you for your goodness to us. And want to be good stewards of all that you have given to us and, and all that uh, we have as the body of Christ. Lord, again, we pray for your blessing on the uh, Awana ministry, youth group ministry. Thank you for all the workers, the leaders. Uh, bless them in their ministry of the word tonight. Keep everybody safe. And uh, again, we just uh, thank you for the word of God. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Uh, note, uh, first up here, we have the theme of the book, uh, the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment. The day of the Lord's broader than judgment, but that's the, the main focus here. And then uh, we're in this section here, just at the beginning this, uh, tonight, greeting and then encouragement in the context of present persecution. And uh, we'll work our way through the book. Gives a little overview, though. Well, uh, in terms of uh, the church at Thessalonica, Paul had founded the church, humanly speaking. It's God who plants the church. But Paul had uh, founded the church on his second missionary journey, as seen in uh, Acts chapter uh, 17, 18. He was there for uh, three weeks, uh, approximately, and then uh, he uh, sent Timothy to kind of follow up the work that had been started there. And now he's heard back from Timothy, and uh, he has uh, responded uh, and corresponded with them. Uh, we now uh, note that he's at, we believe he's at, uh, at Corinth at this point. And uh, put this map up here. Second missionary journey here, right? We tra trace it around here. Came to Thessalonica. Few, a few weeks there, able to found your. We believe he's now down at Corinth here. So uh, <clears throat> this is uh, corresponding from Corinth to Thessalonica there. Again, it's the context of his uh, second missionary journey. Uh, Thessalonica was a pretty good sized city, even in Paul's day. About 200,000 people, we believe, lived there. About 400,000 people there today, so it's still a thriving little place, right? Not so little, even. Uh, 400,000 people. The book is uh, a lot about eschatology. Uh, note 18 of the 47 verses in this book deal with eschatology, future things. First and Second Thessalonians are sometimes called the eschatological epistles, and rightly so. They center around the rapture, the day of the Lord that follows respectively. And so that's, that's what we will be. Uh, there were some questions, and he is, uh, you know, a lot of times in the scriptures, we have entire letters written to bring about correction. Uh, they didn't have it right. And so we learn from that letter. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians is a, is a letter of correction. And we learn a lot about what is the right uh, thing to know and practice because of the letter of correction. We have that kind of a letter here as well in relationship to the, the day of the Lord. Uh, here's a little background here. Uh, the people were troubled because they had previously been taught to expect deliverance from the day of the Lord judgment. They knew the world's headed for judgment, and they thought, but we're going to be delivered from that. But now they were being told by false teachers that they were indeed in it. We're in the day of the Lord judgment. 
And to add to this concern, they were currently experiencing severe persecution, which is one reason the false teachers probably were having some sway with them, saying, see, see, uh, we're in it. Uh, Persecution we're going through is is part of it. And so this brought about uh, some... uh, some concern on the part of the people there and misunderstanding. Okay, well, let's get into it. Let's have somebody read verses 1 and 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Who wants to read that for us tonight? You want to read it, Caleb? Okay, thank you. Uh, He starts out here uh, listing the three, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Another name for Silvanus is Silas, right. And, of course, Silas was a a trusted partner in the ministry, Uh, you know, especially as we get going on the second missionary journey. He's the the partner with with Paul. Uh, And then uh, he met uh, Timothy on the second missionary journey. They became very close almost immediately, and Paul grafted him in and brought him along uh, very quickly. He calls him my son often. Again, this is uh, the context of the second missionary trip. We know from chapter 3, verse 17, that Paul was, in fact, the writer, even though he lists all three here as uh, greeting the church. Notice he says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, to the church, uh, word church, uh, ecclesia, means a called out ones. It's a called out assembly. Could refer to even a secular uh, assembly that is, you know, meeting in the town square or wherever. But this is the word that the Holy Spirit chose to use for the assembly of God's people. Uh, local church here. Uh, we have local, the local church, but we also have uh, universal church. But here he's talking specifically to the church of the Thessalonians. And he describes them as being in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> it's the church of God. It's also the, you know, uh, the church of Christ. But in, note that little uh, preposition, in, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the idea of in is that we are in union, in union, in spiritual union with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father refers to the fact that we're his children, right? You have a father, you have children. Uh, They are spiritual children of the Father. And as our Father, He is our provider. He's our our caretaker, our corrector. All of these uh, images uh, fit there. But notice He links uh, in God our Father with and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means master. Uh, When used of the risen Lord, it's always the idea of God master. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus means Savior. You should call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins, Matthew 121. And then Christ means uh, literally anointed one. It goes back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when somebody had a special calling from God, they would anoint them with oil. Uh, this was the anointed one, uh, the, the one that had a special calling uh, from God upon their life. Jesus Christ is the anointed one, the chosen one, the special one, uh, who would come in fulfillment of prophecy to be Israel's deliverer, uh, who would rule and reign. Uh, ultimately over Israel. So he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says uh, in verse 2, I guess I should put this slide up since I put it in there. We'll we'll use it, huh? 
note that God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are here linked, indicating their equality. Uh, To be in one is to be in both. One can't have a relationship with the Father and not the Son, and vice versa. They are a package. Be in union with one is to be in union uh, with both. And so, yeah, we see the linkage here. uh, In God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not one or the other, it's both here. And then he says, continuing the linkage, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Another linkage, uh, two verses, two linkages here. Uh, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Notice uh, grace and peace here. Uh, There is a grace and a peace associated with salvation. We're saved by grace. We preach the gospel of grace. Um, We're saved by the grace of God. By grace are you saved through faith, right? Um, And then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace. So we see grace and peace are connected with uh, salvation. But I don't think that's what's in view here because he's already mentioned they are the church in God, in Christ. Uh, He's not talking about, uh, you know... Uh, grace and peace in relationship to uh, hopefully you'll get saved. It's not talking about salvation so much there. As I think he's talking about Christian living, grace to you, and peace uh, related to Christian living. Again, the message is from, from both. And uh, note uh, grace is, is first here. And grace is always listed first. You have grace and peace. It's never peace and grace. It's always grace and peace. Everything flows out of grace. God's unmerited favor being extended towards his people. And so this is a a message from God. Uh, This is, uh, you know, it's not Paul saying, well, grace to you and peace from me. No, it's from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I really think this is expressing God's disposition towards his local church here. Uh, what, what, What is the message we have from God here? Well, through the apostle, it's grace and peace to you. And when we think about grace in relationship to Christian living, it really, grace is always God's favor, unmerited favor. But it really relates to God's empowerment when we think about Christian living. Uh, we are invited to come to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4. Uh, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, he knows what it is to be human, all the struggles we have. And it was all, in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's been here, uh, and he was in all points tempted, yet without sin. But then it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. This is Christian living, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, when we're tempted, when we're struggling in our human weakness, we need help. We need grace. Well, there's a throne of grace there. And we are invited to come boldly that we might receive the grace that we need. Uh, in our time of, of need. And then uh, peace. Uh, peace is the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. Um, and again, uh, there is a peace related to our, our Christian experience. We read about this in Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is, uh, you know, there's peace with God. Uh, when we put our faith in Christ, we have peace with God. We're reconciled to God. We're in, a, we're in good terms with God. But this is the peace of God. 
related to our Christian experience. I think that's what's in view here. When he says grace to you and peace, uh, God wants them to experience this, this grace and, and his peace in, in their Christian walk, in their Christian experience. Again, we see the linkage uh, of, and really indicating equality here. Uh, it's peace, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this puts Jesus on the same level again, uh, the linkage here with, with God the Father, uh, indicating again his deity. Uh, very strong emphasis here as we have this linkage again, verse 1 and verse 2. All right, any other thoughts there? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Amen. That's a great point, Viz. Uh, you know, I often, when I get up in the morning, I open up my window and I quote from John 14. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. I mean, I mean, you know, it, it is so easy for our hearts to be troubled. And it just kind of reminds me as I'm facing my day, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, and then he goes on from there. But um, yeah, that's a great point, Vince. Uh, this is where he starts this letter to these troubled saints who are really quite confused and troubled and uh, don't know what to think about, are we under the judgment of God? Boy, that's kind of a terrible thought. Uh, maybe, maybe we are experiencing the judgment of God ourselves. <laughs> maybe we're in the tribulation. Maybe we are going to go through it. Maybe we misunderstood Paul. Uh, terrible feeling. No, grace to you and peace. Uh, great point. All right, uh, let's have somebody read verse 3. Who wants to read verse 3 for us? We'll just take that verse by itself. Yes, Jeff? We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Okay, thank you. So uh, we are bound to thank God always for you. Boy, that's some strong language. We're bound means like, you know, it's, a, it's an obligation. You know, I'm bound to do this. Uh, uh, it's my responsibility. I, 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 I'm obligated. And uh, we might say, well, why does he say this so strongly? We are bound to thank God always uh, for you, brethren, as it is fitting. Uh, it's, it's not optional to him. He says, you know, man, I, I need to be giving thanks. I'm obligated here. Why do you think he's stating this in such a strong way? Any ideas why he might be dressing this? You know, should, do, do I feel bound to give thanks for you? <laughs> Probably should, huh? <laughs> I think I am. And I, I think this is where I think he's coming from. Uh, you remember, uh, he's, he's saying here... Uh, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. This is why, why he, I think this is why he's saying he's bound to give thanks for them. In the first letter, remember he said this in chapter 3, verse 10. He's wanting to see them again, night and day praying, seeing that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So there were some things lacking a little bit and he, and he wanted to see them mature or be perfected. And then he says, as he goes on, we'll skip a verse, but then verse 12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So he had specific prayer requests in terms of their faith and their love. Well, now this is happening in their lives, so what should you do? 
Well, you should thank God. God, we've been asking you to work in these people's lives. Now we see them growing in faith and love. Thank you, God. We're, we're bound, I think, in that sense uh, to thank God for what he has been doing. Uh, faith. Uh, notice he says, because your faith grows. Uh, you know, uh, a healthy faith is a growing faith. Uh, what is faith? Faith is trusting God. Faith is taking God at his word. That, that's what faith is. But you know, we grow in our, in our walk. And, and how can you tell if faith is growing? And notice he says their faith is growing exceedingly. I mean, they were growing like crazy. Lots of, lots of good things happening here. Uh, so they, they had experienced super growth, as it were. Uh, how how would you see that? How how can you tell if somebody's faith is growing exceedingly? Yeah, I think that would be part of it. I, I, yeah, go ahead. Go, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yep. And, and that's what they're going through from, from their servants there and, and people trying to tell them that, that they're going through what they're, what they're really not going through. But they're going through some type of suffering. That is right on. I, and that's exactly where he goes. So that's why I tend to think, you know, faith is seen, especially in the context of suffering, in the context of hardship. Uh, persecution, and they're going through it, and they are holding up. There's no compromise in their faith. So they are, they are growing greater challenges. They're meeting it with faith, which is showing their faith life in that context. And so I think, I think that's a surrounding context as he goes on to talk about uh, this in verse uh, 4, uh, in your persecutions and tribulations and, and all of these things that he goes on to talk about there. Okay, any other thoughts there? All right, uh, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. Uh, the word love here is agape, which is the intense word for love, seeks the other person's highest good. Um, it uh, gives of itself sacrificially. It's, it's other-centered. Uh, the emphasis here is on fellow believers, right? I mean, this is, you know, we love, we want to love everybody, but there's a special love bond between believers and Christ said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. Notice the one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one, if, uh, love for one another. Three times one another in, ver in two verses. Uh, so, and uh, the qualifier to love one another as he loved us. Uh, well, they're, they're showing this. They're, their love for each other as brothers and sisters is abounding. Uh, note, uh, faith is mentioned first here, then love. Uh, love develops out of uh, true faith. And really, faith works through love, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 6. And so, um, you know what's interesting here? He does have correction to bring in the book here. He kind of waits till the last chapter, till the last part of the letter, before he really brings some serious words of, pretty stern words of correction uh, but not here. He opens a letter commending them first, which is not a bad way to go, right? Uh, he's wanting to encourage them. His goal is to build them up. By the way, 
doesn't say anything about hope here. How come? Do you suppose? You know, he mentions faith and love, but he doesn't say anything about hope. I, I think they were a little disturbed over their hope. Yeah, they're shaken. Yeah. So, so he doesn't mention anything about hope here. Uh, hope is a confident expectation that God will bring to pass what he has promised. But if you're not even sure exactly about the promise, uh, you know, Paul says in Titus, looking you know, for the blessed hope, glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing is said here, perhaps because they're a little confused and they need a little correction uh, in regards to hope here. All right, any other thoughts here before we go to uh, verses 4 and 5? Yeah. Amen to that. That's for sure. Um, the grace of these is love, as you mentioned there, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, church at Ephesus, sound doctrinal church. I mean, commended for their sound doctrine, but they have left their first love. So serious, Christ says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your, your witness, your, your candlestick. So, yeah. Yeah, Vince? And that's a great point. Uh, I think there's a level of maturity that says, you know, uh, hey, what can you all do for me? But versus, hey, what can I do for the good of the, the body here? That, that's mature thinking versus self-oriented thinking. So that's good. All right. Anyone else? Okay. Let's have somebody read verses uh, 4 and 5. Somebody want to read that? 4 and 5? Yeah, Anita. Okay, thanks. Uh, so notice, uh, as he's talking about their, their faith and their love growing and abounding, uh, he says it's to such a point that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. And he says, for your patience and faith 
in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Um, it says we're boasting about you. Is that appropriate? <laughs> you know, the, I think there's a place for sanctified bragging. Probably not about yourself, though, right? Just grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Proverbs 27, 2. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger not your own lips. So, you know, I think there's a place for somebody else to uh, speak highly of you, right? And, I mean, it's not in a, a flesh sense here. I mean, he's definitely giving God the glory in the whole context here. So he's not, you know, wanting them to exalt in the flesh here in any way. But he is saying, in effect, I'm, I'm proud of you for how you're standing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking highly of you, and, and we're speaking highly of you uh, because of your stand in the context of, of persecution here. So he says, we ourselves boast of you uh, among the churches of God. These are local churches. Again, there's there's one universal church. Christ said, I will build my church uh, universal. But then there is local churches. And, and so he's plural here, talking about local churches. And uh, again, you know, we talk about uh, the church. And is it the church of God or is it the church of Christ? Well, you know, he talks about the churches of God here in verse 4. Romans sixteen sixteen. the churches of Christ greet you. Is there a difference between the churches of God and the churches of Christ? Well, we've got both denominations. We've got it all covered. <laughs> right. As far as the label that they've given themselves, that's true. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and, and frankly, the difference is the doctrine in terms of how it lines up with Scripture, too, because the one... Uh, has holds the baptismal regeneration, which I would re- out, out, not reject, you know. So, but uh, as far as the biblical use of the term, right? The biblical use of the the phrase here, no difference because Christ is God, right? Christ is God. So whether you want to talk about churches of God, uh, Christ said, it's, "I will build my church." Uh, well, is that the church of God? Well, yeah, uh, because Christ is God, and so uh, yeah. It's, Six of this, half dozen the other, however you want to say it. Uh, it's all the same uh, churches here. And uh, notice, uh, here's what he is uh, really boasting about as far as these churches, or, or this local church to the other churches, uh, for your patience, for your patience and faith. Uh, patience is perseverance. Uh, patience is you keep on keeping on. It's the idea of endurance uh, through hardships, uh, steadfastness. And uh, this becomes evidence uh, that, uh, that we are real. Here in Matthew 13, you know, we're in the middle of uh, the sower uh, and the soils, that parable. But he who received the seed on the stony places, this is he who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. It's not really a heart thing. No root in himself, but endures only for a while. When tribulation persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So this is, uh, I think, indicative of those that are not really genuine. There's an immediate profession of faith, but the real testing is when the tribulation and the persecution comes. They don't stand then. Immediately fall. They immediately receive a joy. Oh, hey! But immediately fall away just as quickly. Not here. Uh, that's why he is so excited about this church. They are persevering in spite of 
everything they've been going through. The context here is very important. The Thessalonians were being told that the extreme persecution they were experiencing was an indication that they were in the day of the Lord's judgment. In fact, Paul will go on to show that perseverance in the context of persecution is an indication of kingdom citizenship. Got it exactly wrong. True faith is not exempt from persecution, but rather perseveres in spite of it. Um, you know, there's one thing we as the American church probably have quite a bit to learn yet in terms of how to, how to uh, respond to persecution. <laughs> praise the Lord for the freedoms that we've enjoyed it. I'm not, I'm not wanting anything else either, you know. I <laughs> praise the Lord for him. But it is true that God often does use persecution. Has through the years... In fact, where the church is really thriving and growing the most in certain parts of the world, they're under tremendous persecution sometimes in those contexts. I mean, you can look at it different ways, too. It's hard sometimes in those contexts to have a lot of maturity as far as because of a lot of things there, too. So, But God does use persecution, and that's what he says here. He's boasting of them because of their patience and faith. Uh, and faith here was closely associated with perseverance. I think faith is really, it drives perseverance. It's because of your faith that you're persevering. But notice he says, in all your persecutions and tribulations. Persecutions are organized harassment against God's people. Uh, tribulations, you know, troubles. That's, tribulations are troubles, uh, general troubles. That you endure. Uh, the idea of enduring is to bear up under trial. And this, again, is the reason Paul is boasting in this local church, because they are keeping on keeping on. They are an example of uh, what we should be as, as God's people in the context of, of uh, persecution. This church was born in a context of persecution. We saw this in, in the first letter. And now they are continuing uh, to have this ongoing experience. Notice he says, uh, verse 5, which is manifest evidence... What they are going through in terms of suffering persecutions and tribulations, uh, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. There's a lot in that verse. In fact, we'll spend a little bit of time on this verse. A lot in this verse. Uh, manifest evidence is the idea of plain indication, obvious evidence. Uh, these persecutions that they were, were going through uh, and in that context, they really were putting the grace of God on display in, the, in terms of their love for one another, uh, their faith, uh, how they're enduring this and how they're going through this. I, I think it made it evident that the coming judgment of God, that God's going to bring on these people, uh, is a righteous judgment. And that's what he is saying here, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. I believe this is directed to uh, unbelievers, this righteous judgment of God. Uh, we will see in the next verse, we won't get there tonight, but since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Uh, vengeance is God, God repays, and, and it's a righteous thing that he does so. And, and he is ultimately going to judge uh, the unbelieving world for how they have mistreated his people. Uh, let's see here, I've got another slide here. Realize that these believers were expecting the judgment of God to fall on the world as a thief in the night, as Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians 5. They themselves have been taught 
that they were to be delivered from God's wrath as seen in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9. So righteous judgment in their minds related to uh, imminent judgment that could fall on the world at any time. I mean, that's what Paul had previously uh, taught them. They were expecting this judgment to, to come. And the basis for this judgment that is going to come uh, is rebellion against God as seen in the persecution of God's people. You really can't disassociate God from his people. What, how people treat God's people is really an indication of their attitude towards God. And uh, so he's saying this is, it's a righteous thing because of what you're going through for God to judge. Persevering faith in the face of hostile persecution is damning evidence of gospel truth. It is God on display in the lives of his people. Hostile rejection of it shows great rebellion and is a manifest demonstration of why God's judgment of this rebellion is just. It shows that God is right in dealing with these unbelievers in this way. And that's really what I think the bottom line is here as far as what he's, he's emphasizing. And, uh, you know, we should not think that, uh, you know, everything's just going to be... This prosperity gospel has been one of the worst heresies that's ever come into the church. You know, we are called to uh, take our cross and follow Christ. Uh, we shouldn't expect that everything's just going to be rosy all the time. In fact, it's going to be a hard thing. In fact, Paul writes to the Philippians and says, uh, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. I mean, it's evidence of the supernatural reality in, inside you. But to you of salvation and that from God. And so, um, you know, this, this is our, our calling in, in uh in terms of uh, what, what God has for us. And we see this in different places. In Acts uh, chapter 9, remember when uh, Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, he fell to the ground and heard a loud voice saying, Saul, so why are you persecuting me? Well, was Saul persecuting Jesus? Well, yes, in the sense that he was persecuting the body of Christ. Christ takes that very personal uh, the martyrs in heaven cry, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Is that a very heavenly mindset, do you think? <laughs> you might want to think real hard before you argue with the saints in heaven. <laughs> yes. Yep. No, it wouldn't be that that's right. Well, amen. That's a great illustration. Amen. Uh, the vicious persecution which the world hands out to God's people of persevering faith is an example of why God's judgment that will come on the world is righteous. Yeah, he is stating the principle that it's a righteous thing with God to judge the world for how they have abused his people. Even the saints of heaven recognize this. This is a righteous thing. It's a right thing for God to do this. Now, we pray that they'll come to repentance, but if they won't come to repentance, um, it's a righteous thing for God to, to judge them. But God's got another purpose. He says that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom. Uh, this is not the idea of to make worthy, that your suffering somehow makes you worthy of the kingdom. That's not the right sense here. It's the idea of but to be declared worthy. Uh, it demonstrates this. It recognizes this. Uh, note a few quotes here. 
Uh, such suffering does not make one worthy, but it declares the already worthy on the basis of grace. Suffering is thus the outcome of true faith. Hebert says the sufferings are not meritorious, procuring their entry into the kingdom, for their sufferings are the outcome of having already been saved by faith. And again, MacArthur says their suffering was not, of course, the basis of the Thessalonian salvation, but the evidence of it. And I, I do think that is what is being said there. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, first letter, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. Again, they were already going through persecution all along here. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. What? We have an appointment with this? This is what we're appointed to? All the prosperity gospel people just left the stage here. Romans 8, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The sense is that we are expected that we are going to suffer with him and, and we are also ex- going to be glorified with him. This kind of goes together. Suffering manifests evidence of kingdom citizenship. If you're truly a child of God and on your way to the kingdom, expect that you're going to suffer. I mean, this, this, is, this is our lot in life. Uh, say, well, I just think, hoping I'm skating through without getting anything. <laughs> Don't plan on it. Uh, God uses these things. And in fact, it's uh, evidence that you're a kingdom citizen. And, and of course, the goal is always the kingdom. And as God's people, we are kingdom people. We are headed for the kingdom. We're not there now, but we are citizens of heaven already. We are kingdom citizens already. Um, and and we're, we're headed there. And he says, uh, for which you also suffer. Again, it's expected that true believers on one level or, an, or another will suffer for their faith. Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom. We're not there yet. We're on our way, but the way, the way there is through many tribulations. Through many tribulations. I mean, this guy just never would have made it as a prosperity gospel teacher. Just, just wouldn't have made it. John 15, Jesus said, Remember the word I said to you, servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they'll persecute you. They'll also persecute you. If they've kept my word, they'll keep yours also. So Christ said, you know what? They're not going to treat you any different than they treated me. But what makes you think, you know, you're so special, you won't get any persecution. Uh, no, it doesn't work that way. Now, instead of, here's the correction. Instead of thinking, because of everything we're going through, we're under judgment, No, you need to think differently and think, really, this is an indication of kingdom citizenship. This is our calling as God's people. Philippians 3.10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We like that. Why didn't he put a period there? And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. They really go together. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul writes to Timothy, last thing he said, right? To, to Timothy, last letter that he wrote. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I mean, he's saying basically expect it. I mean, this just, this just goes with the turf. If you're going to live godly, I mean, you think the devil's going to sit over and say, well, he gets a pass. <laughs> no way. There's going to be some tough times. John MacArthur, uh, I guess I'm ahead of myself. This is not the slide. 
Uh, Paul brings out persecution serves two purposes. Number one, it makes evident that God's coming judgment on the wicked who persecute his people, uh, persevering in faith, is totally just. It's a, it's a righteous thing for God to hold them accountable for what they have done to God's people. And number two, it serves to demonstrate that his people are worthy of the kingdom. Kingdom people are those who are willing to suffer for Christ. Our calling is in the pattern of our Lord, first the cross, then the kingdom. The fact of our suffering for him affirms our position in the kingdom. Suffering serves as a recognition that we have the right kind of faith. Um, you know, you go to Revelation, talks about uh, overcomers, but then it says, but the cowardly. First thing it mentions. Say, I, I would take a stand, but I'm, I'm, no, I'm not willing to take that kind of a stand. That's not indicative of the right kind of faith. Uh, in, uh, okay, here's where I was at. Some time ago, John MacArthur wrote a, a book titled Found God's Will. In it, he spelled out five simple things related to God's will. Number one, God's will is for you to be saved. Uh, not one of you should perish. All should come to repentance. God's will for you is to be spirit-filled. Be filled with the spirit. Command. Uh, God's will is for you to be sanctified. God's will is for you to be submissive. And God's will for you is to suffer. We were doing great till we got to that fifth point there. Uh, no, that's part of it too. Uh, it's part of the way of the cross. And then finally, my last slide here, 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you were called. This is your calling. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. This is our calling. Uh, it looks to me like what Peter is saying is that we are called to suffer for Christ's sake. On some level, you know, it's not like I, I have this morbid desire to go out and, you know, suffer. Uh, I, I don't want that either. No, you know, it's not normal. But... Uh, said to the Philippians, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Uh, this was their lot. They had been granted uh, not only to believe, but also to, to suffer for his sake. Well, I read this story about this lady who found, uh, I don't know if, if, where she found it, but she found an old baseball card somewhere in the attic or wherever it was. And it was all crinkled up and discolored and and, uh, but it was pretty old, and so she thought, well, maybe it's, you know, maybe, maybe I'll get a little money out of it. It's, it's an old baseball card. So she put it on eBay, thought, thinking maybe I'll get 10 bucks for it or something. Well, some of the professionals started looking at this thing, and pretty soon, some people said, hey, I think that might be worth some money. So they, she had it checked out. It turned out that thing was worth $75,000. And uh, a newspaper article was written uh, about it and said, you know, even though it was, you know crumpled up and kind of disfigured and discolored. Uh, the most important thing about that card was its authenticity. It was real. And you know, that's so true of Christians. The main thing about Christianity is that it's authentic. And the thing that probably shows authenticity as much as anything is suffering. Uh, you know... <laughs> I never forget, John MacArthur was interviewing this guy. He came from Russia, I think, way back in the day. And the guy was saying, I'm in America. He says, I just can't believe uh, all these people who claim to be Christian and they're not really Christian. He says, where I am from, you would never claim to be a Christian if you weren't one. Just couldn't believe it. Well, suffering has a way of taking care of people, just phony professions. And... Uh, so that's what he says here. It's a manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, God's 
judging these people who are persecuting his people, but also that you may be counted worthy, declared worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. All right, any other thoughts as we wrap up here this evening? Okay. Let's go ahead and share some prayer requests here.